I want to begin with uh, three pictures, three little snapshots, which I hope will help us understand uh, Romans 6 a bit more. So the first is, in August this year, uh, Lionel Messi, who is uh, possibly one of the world's most uh, famous football players ever, he signed for um, Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and after 18 years of being a Barcelona player, uh, he is now pulling on the um, PSG strip week by week and serving a different club. In August 1961, um, a wall was built uh, in Berlin. Um, it was built to stem the flow of emigrants from the communist east part of the city uh, to the democratic west. And despite the wall, many East Germans continued to escape to live under the political regime of the West. Every year, millions of people across the world change their citizenship giving them the right to live and work permanently in their new country and to be protected by its laws. So club transfer, regime change, new citizenship. In a nutshell, that is what Romans 6 is all about. The Message Bible interprets the start of Romans 6 really well. And this is the message version's rendering of verses, um, yeah, verses 1 to 5. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. I love that. I love the bit particularly where um, it says, when we went into the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. Now Paul's not giving the action of baptism uh, any special power here. It's not baptism which saves us, but faith. But in the early church, baptism would have followed almost immediately from a believer's decision to follow Jesus. Faith in Christ and baptism were inseparable. One automatically followed the other. And of course, baptism would have been by full immersion with all that, all its kind of wonderful drama and powerful imagery of being buried and then rising out of the water. You may remember the baptism we had here in church in October. So Romans 6, it's all about change in status. 
We play for a new team. We live in a new regime. We are citizens of a new country. We are under new management. No longer do we play, serve and live under the authority and the power of sin, but under the authority and power of grace. As Paul sketched out for us in Romans 5, there are two realms, two realms, that of sin and death, founded by Adam, and that of righteousness and life, founded by Jesus Christ. And all people, all people belong to one of these two realms. And chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Romans, they map out for us something of what living looks like for the citizens of this new kingdom. Now, at the start of chapter 6, and it would be really helpful if you had chapter 6 open, um, the Bibles are sitting under the chairs in front of you or find it on your phone. Um, at the start of chapter 6, I think it's something like 10, page 1069, 1070, at the start of chapter 6, Paul begins by addressing a possible misunderstanding. And a misunderstanding which could have arisen because of what he says at the end of chapter 5. And if you look back to the end of chapter 5, um, I'm reading verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Might increase. But where sin increased... Grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace increased. Now, some might argue that if grace increases in proportion to sin, our failure to live wholeheartedly for God and to live perfect holy lives, Surely it's worth sinning all the more. Sinning all the more in order to get even more grace. This is the equivalent of the, uh, the badly behaved child whose parents keep giving them treats and uh, regardless of their behavior. And so the child just keeps on doing bad things just to get more and more treats. If grace increases where sin increases, shouldn't we just keep on sinning? That, there, there is a curious logic going on there. But Paul is emphatic. By no means, he says. By no means. As players of a different team, as those who serve a new regime and citizens of a new country, we have moved from one state of being to another, from death to life, from the rule of law to the rule of grace. Therefore, writes Paul in verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are under the law. You are not under the law, but under grace. Now, there is an elephant in the room here. 
I love that expression, elephant in the room. To say that there is an elephant in the room means that there is something really obvious um, which we might just be ignoring. Um, A student once bought David, this elephant, as a leaving gift um, as a result of the many conversations they'd had where they either had to address the elephant in the room or perhaps ignored the elephant in the room. And the elephant here is there is an apparent implication that we can just turn our back on sin. We can just say, oh, sin, you've got no more control over me. Your reign is over, just like that. But as we all know, it's one thing to say that through Christ, sin is no longer our master. We're no longer subject to its consequences. It, it no longer has ultimate power over us. We've, we turn our back on its reign. It's quite another thing, isn't it, to live that out. In fact, we know it's impossible. And so we might wonder, what is the point in trying? Now, Paul evidently knew some people who felt the same. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? What's the point of trying if God is going to forgive us anyway? Now, you might have heard of somebody called um, Krish Kandaya. Um, he's um, spoken at lots of things like Spring Harvest, um, had many different uh, roles. And he's written a book called um, Paradoxology, which apart from being a book that um, I don't think there is such a word as paradoxology, and it's a little bit hard to say. But apart from that, this is actually a really helpful and interesting um, and easy-to-read book. And paradoxology, it looks at a number of key paradoxes or puzzles in the Christian faith. Um, A paradox being one of those situations where two um, truths appear to contradict one another. And in this book, Krish Kandaya, he talks about an occasion when he was um, challenged by a student as to why we should try changing our behaviour if God was as loving and compassionate as Krish Kandaya had just said in, in a talk that he'd just given. Why change our behavior if God was as loving and compassionate as Krish Kandaya said he was? And it's a similar question to the one that Paul is addressing in chapter 6. If, if God is forgiving and loving, then why bother changing the way we behave? And to answer the student's question, uh, Krish Kandaya, he talked about his grandmother. Um, He talked about his grandmother, who was a a, a lovely and a a gracious lady and uh, uh, who loved him, he believed, unconditionally. And and he was pretty certain that his grandmother would forgive him anything. And knowing this, um, Krish Krish Kandaya, he asks the student whether that means he should deliberately punch his grandmother on the nose um, just to make the most of her forgiveness or whether he should keep playing his music really loudly just to upset her because he knew that she would love him anyway. Of course, that's ridiculous, isn't it? That, that, that's not what we do. Um, 
The only response to such love, to being loved, is to love in return, just as our response to our gracious and loving God should be. We must not set out to test God's loving patience, rather try our best to love him back by living his way. God's grace is not an excuse to take advantage of him. Rather, it should be a motivation to us to live a life worthy of the grace we've received. Our experience of the Christian life is always going to feel paradoxical. Um, This is Krish Kandaya writing in his book. Because we are people in transition, we are like slaves learning to be free. We are addicts coming off our dependencies. We are newlyweds getting used to our new identity. We are prisoners of war venturing out of the camp. We are bankrupts rebuilding our lives now that our debts have finally been paid. We are people sentenced to death who have been given new life. We are living between two realities, what we used to be and what God is making us into. God has done the work that was needed. He has rescued, justified, redeemed, liberated and accepted us. Now he calls us to work out the implications of what he has done in the day-to-day reality of our lives and empowers us to do so by his spirit. We are to live out of our new identity, allowing it with the spirit's help to shape and direct our life. Yes, we live in the paradoxical moment between our new identity in Christ and the reality of our day-to-day experience. And this paradox is hard to live with. But nonetheless, God wants us to learn to live in the reality of who he has made us and what he has done for us, surrounded as we are by many challenges and temptations. There is, of course, another apparent paradox, apparent contradiction in this chapter. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Free from sin and slaves to righteousness. Now, that's a bit of a head-scratcher. Free from sin and slaves to righteousness. We live in an age which talks a lot about being free, being free in terms of the personal choices we make, who we want um, to be, who we aspire to be. I'm not thinking here about um, political freedoms or civil liberties or human rights, rather freedom in terms of understanding who we are and who we are created to be. There's a a big emphasis, isn't there, on finding ourselves, creating our own sense of self and purpose. We, We can be anything that we want to be, and it's a really popular narrative. But in a world where many people, um, many, many people, they simply struggle to survive, that narrative is somewhat idealistic and I would suggest flawed. The Bible comes at freedom in a quite different way because in the Bible, freedom comes 
from knowing who we were created to be. It comes from discovering our identity in Christ, an identity which is summed up for us in Romans chapter 8. Remember, that's the destination. That's where we're heading. That's the summit of our climb. And in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, we read that we are God's children. We are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Biblical freedom, then, is knowing and living this, knowing this and living out of this, knowing we are made by God to live for God, and by doing so, discovering a richer and fuller and more satisfying life than we ever thought possible. There is allegedly, um, and I failed to find a reliable source for this quote, and I had a little bit of a discussion with somebody over coffee after the 9.30 as to which particular character it was, but never mind, um, and I'm happy to continue that discussion after coffee, after coffee uh, in coffee after this service, but... I think there's an episode in the life of the popular children's character Thomas the Tank Engine. Somebody thinks it might be Edward. Um, which pictures Thomas on his side, having fallen off the track, shouting, I'm free! I'm sorry, I did that this morning. I can't do a Ringo Starr um, voice because he doesn't know it anyway. I'll just do it straight. I'm free. I'm free at last. I've fallen off the rails and I'm free. I'm free! Of course, as a steam train, Thomas is anything but free, isn't he? He's anything but free, having fallen off the rails. Um, because for Thomas to work as he was intended to do, to run well, he needs to stay on the tracks. He needs to remain on the rails. Paul, Paul's point here is that we are all slaves to something. We're all slaves to something. We're either slaves to sin, to patterns of living and thinking which bring death, or we're slaves to God, by whose grace and goodness we're delivered into life. Now, we shouldn't conclude that Paul's use of slavery as an image here implies um, approval, simply that it, it was a powerful contemporary image as he explains what biblical freedom means. This kind of freedom, it's not that of self-direction or self-determination, but of deliverance from all that stops us becoming the person that God made us to be. There's a very old and beautiful prayer written by the 4th century African church leader and thinker, Augustine. Oh God, to know you is eternal life. To serve you is perfect freedom. To know you is eternal life. To serve you is perfect freedom. And here is the paradox. Here is the apparent contradiction that Christian freedom is at the same time a kind of slavery. For being bound to God, living in obedience to him, is true freedom. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. 
And this is a prayer of Augustine. Eternal God, who are the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, grant us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, in a moment, we're going to stand and worship God together. And during these songs, members of our prayer team will be at the right of church. And I just really encourage you to... um, Sometimes people think that, oh, you know, I only go to prayer ministry, I've got a problem. Um, That, you know, if you see people, oh, they must have a big problem to go and be prayed with. Well, that might be true. But actually, we go and ask for prayer for all sorts of kinds of reasons. And there may be things that have just resonated um, in, in this chapter from Romans about knowing more of that freedom that God has for us, knowing more of our true identity is found in Jesus. might be that there are things, that kind of paradox, that contradiction of living, knowing that we're not under the rule of sin, but things that we find difficult living in the real world. So... There's all sorts there to pray with, and it's just a blessing and privilege to be prayed with by.